You know, I'm always uh, interested in a movie where someone is on the run. Don't you like that? In fact, one of my favorites, okay, I know this dates me just a little bit, but I'm a lot younger than some of you. One of my favorites was The Fugitive, right? And really, you can watch The Fugitive any night of the week, all right? It's on some station. If you have cable, it's on some station. It's that good of a movie, all right? A guy on the run. And in most of these movies, there's a person that's committed a crime or been accused of a crime, and now he or she is on the run. And he believes that no matter how many law enforcement officers are after them, they will somehow be able to find a way to escape. They will never, ever, ever be caught. And usually they're able to run for a time, and then at the end of the movie, they are caught, right? That's what makes a movie. I don't know how many of you have seen the uh, movie that came out in 2002 called Catch Me If You Can. It was an American biographical crime film based on the life of Frank Abagnale, and who, before his 19th birthday, successfully performed cons worth, they estimate, millions and millions of dollars by posing as a Pan American uh, World Airways pilot, a Georgia doctor, and a Louisiana parish prosecutor. And his primary crime, if you remember the movie, was check fraud. And he was finally caught, as they all are. And when he was caught, the FBI was so convinced of his talents that they offered him a reduced sentence if he would go to work for them in the fraud department of the FBI. And he did that, actually, for a number of years. Uh, Over a period of 25 years being in the ministry, I have been around many, many people who are running. Not from law enforcement, but nevertheless running. And if I'm honest, I'm quite certain that there have been times in my life when I ran as well. Maybe you're here this morning and that's what would describe your life right now. In fact, maybe your life would be described by one of these singular words. I'm running. I'm in denial. I'm fearful. Or maybe it's just the word secrets. The things I know internally, things I know that are going on that nobody else, or at least I think nobody else around me knows about. And here is the sober truth. Most of the time when we're running, see if this is true in your life, we convince ourselves that we're never going to be caught, that payday will never come, the day of reckoning will never dawn. You know, in the times of my life when I found myself in that situation, that's described me pretty well. It's the student who's cheating their way to good grades rather than doing the hard work that's required to get those grades. It's the husband or wife that's unhappy in their marriage and they have convinced themselves that they deserve to be happy and so they're involved with another person. It's the man who sits in front of the computer, the man, the young man, the high school student, the middle school student that sits in front of the computer night after night lusting after women, telling himself that everybody does it. It's a guy thing. It's the businessman or woman who month after month pads the expense account, justifying it, saying that they don't pay me enough and this is my way to kind of get back at the company a little bit and so they take a little bit extra from that expense account. The reality is this, no matter if you found yourself in one of those circumstances or one that I haven't mentioned this morning, the reality is this, that our past always has a way of catching up to us. In fact, there was a great king in Israel, a man that the Apostle Paul referred to as a man after God's own heart. And I take great comfort in that this morning, by the way, that the Apostle Paul did that. 
Because this man, it would appear after looking at what he did that he thought had been hidden, should have appeared not to be a man after God's own heart, and yet he was listed that way in Scripture. And he learned this lesson the hard way that your past does eventually catch up to you. If you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to uh, attempt to do something that I probably shouldn't attempt to do, and I'm going to attempt to go through this story of David and Bathsheba in chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel. And I'm, and I'm going to tell you at the outset, there are some of you here this morning, you're very familiar with the story. You could get up here and you could teach it as well as I can. There are others of you, this is a new story to you. You've never heard the story, you've certainly never understood the spiritual parallels in the story. I will just tell you, as I've said for the last several weeks, as we look at our examples in this particular series, that we will go back from time to time and we'll investigate these passages in a little bit more depth. For somebody who appreciates the exposition of Scripture, sometimes uh, I find it very overwhelming to try to take a huge passage of Scripture and kind of narrow it down for us, but that's what I'm going to attempt to do this morning. We'll read a little bit of it as we go along the way, and then I'll summarize as we go through this story. Look at verse 1. It says, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, at the very root of the problem here is that we find a king who wasn't where he belonged. He wasn't in the place that he was supposed to be. If see, if David had been out on the battlefield where the king was supposed to be, instead of hanging around the palace looking at things that he shouldn't have been looking at, this whole incident may have never been recorded in Scripture. In fact, some have suggested that David might have been battling depression or some in our modern day culture have uh, convinced themselves that maybe he was having a midlife crisis. In either event, we do know this, he wasn't where he belonged. Maybe you found this to be true of you in my uh, 46 years of life. My experience has taught me that when I'm not where I ought to be, when I'm not where I belong, that's usually gotten me into trouble. Is that true in your life? Whenever you've placed yourself in circumstances, whether that's the high school student that's at the party, and all of a sudden you're looking around going, I don't think this is the right place. Whether that's being on a date, uh, high school students, singles, and all of a sudden you're going, I'm with the wrong person, we're in the wrong circumstances, and bad things are going to happen. Whenever you're in a place where you do not belong, you set yourself up for failure. Look at verse 2. Now when evening came, David rose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he laid with her. He had a sexual relationship with her. When she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Now here's what you need to understand. David didn't set out to commit some heinous, dreadful sin. People seldom do that, right? People seldom, you know, sit in their car or sit in their office, sit in their room and think about this heinous thing that they want to do. That's a rare thing. It happens, but rarely do we do that. At the first inquiry, he just wanted to know who this woman is. What is her marital status? And had she been unmarried, based on the culture of that day, he could have pursued her as his wife and that inquiry would not have been improper. But by the time he learned that she was married, he was already down a road that he should have never gone down. See, he'd already lusted after her. He had already seen her. He'd already desired her. And I will say this to you this morning, uh, men especially, that unbridled lust 
can do that to a person if you allow it to smolder long enough in your heart, in your eyes. And by this point, David's intentions have shifted from an interest in maybe taking Bathsheba as his wife to wanting to have her. And, and he does just that with no intent of a long-term affair, just a one-night stand with a good-looking woman. And as it always does, sin has its consequences. Look at verse 5. The text says, The woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Galatians 6 verses 7 and 8 say this, Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to please his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I want to give you real quickly this morning as we move through this passage, I want to give you what uh, a lot of Bible teachers refer to as the laws of the harvest. Okay, They're there in your notes this morning. Look at number one. Here's the laws of the harvest. I know you might think that because I'm from Nebraska that I grew up on a farm. I didn't. I really don't know that much about farming. When I've planted flowers, they never live. When I overseed my lawn in the fall, it always dies, all right? So I'm not a farmer. I don't really know that much about farming. So these are very simple principles of harvest. Follow with me. Number one, you get what you plant. You say, well, that's bright. I mean, it doesn't really, even a city boy knows that. I know that if you put an orange seed in the ground that you don't get apples. I get that. I know that if you put a corn seed in the ground, I know that you don't get string beans. I, I get that. It's important for you to understand in a spiritual parallel, though, that you get what you plant. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Here's number two. You also get it in a different season. This is why I'm not a farmer, right? Because I want it now. I love the microwave. That was the best day of my life when the microwave came to our home, uh, which wasn't until late in high school, believe it or not. But when that microwave came in and popcorn was instant that was awesome right because i want things to happen right away and if they don't happen right away i assume there's no consequence there's nothing good you've heard me say before i'm the guy that goes and eats three chocolate chip cookies goes up jumps on the scale weighs my it goes it hasn't changed since this morning i think i'll go have three more if there are no immediate consequences then sometime we have a ha- habit to think that we must have gotten away with it but you not only get what you plant but you get it in a different season. You put the seed in the ground, you water it, you fertilize it, and then eventually something comes out of the ground. You see, David had not anticipated the result of his sin with Bathsheba. Had he done that, obviously he would have made different choices. And so David, like the rest of us, went to his first instinct. And what's his first instinct? His first instinct is to cover up his sin and to shift the responsibility to somebody else. Parents, this is how you'll always know when you catch your kids doing something, if they're truly repentant, if they blame it on somebody else, if they try to cover it up, there is no repentance. And that was true of David. Look at verse 6. Then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. Let me summarize the next several verses. Uriah gets home. Uriah has been on the battlefield, uh, which is where the king was supposed to be. And Uriah uh, gets home and, and, and David says to Uriah, why don't you go down to your house and, you know, your wife hasn't seen you in a while. <laughs> She's seen me, but she hasn't seen you in a while. Why don't you go down to your house? Why don't you spend the evening since you're home anyway? I don't know what David's motives must have been, the story that he must have told Uriah. Uriah's going, why have you invited me back? And why is the king talking to me? You see, what David hadn't anticipated is that Uriah was a faithful warrior. Uriah refused. 
Even after David had gotten him drunk, Uriah refused to go down and to be with his wife, saying, while my men are in battle, I won't do that. And so he slept outside of the gates. David hadn't anticipated that he was dealing with a man who had a sense of honor and loyalty. And so rather than going and being with his wife, he decided to stay outside until he got back to the battlefield. And finally, David gets desperate in verse 14, and like most desperate men or women, he did something really stupid. You ever find yourself in that situation? You get desperate, all of a sudden your sin is beginning to catch up with you, you recognize that it might not be as easy to cover it up, that maybe somebody besides God knows about what you've done, and you get really stupid and you do stupid things. Look at verse 14, now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the hand of Uriah. He had a handwritten letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. You go, wow, man, don't mess with King David, right? I'd have friends like that. David sent word back to Joab, basically telling him, put Uriah right up at the front where I'm quite certain he would be killed. Now, just side note, okay, doesn't cost you anything free of charge. We'll save it probably for another time to go into depth. All along the path of destruction in your life, I believe God places people there who can go, wait a second, that's wrong. If if you find yourself in relationships with people, or I hope if you are part of Northwest Community Church, that you are in a place where there are men, there are women, there are people that love and care about you who will come up to you and go, enough, something's wrong, something's out of step. You ought to be so thankful that you have those people in your life. I'm thankful that I have them in my life. Men that will look at me and say, that is wrong. Don't do that. Don't go down that road. If you've got friends like that, you ought to thank God every day for them. Unfortunately, Joab wasn't one of those kinds of men. Now, wouldn't you have thought it odd? Some of you have served in the military. Wouldn't you have thought it odd if, if the, the main general had said, hey, why don't you go take private so-and-so and put him right up on the front lines? And you're going, if I put him on the front lines, he's going to die. Why would you want me? Wouldn't you ask questions? Joab doesn't do that. And so Joab puts him right to the front lines. And obviously, verse 18, Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, verse 19, saying, when you finish telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go near to the city to fight? Did you know that they would shoot at the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Name your next kid that. Did not throw a woman and an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. He anticipated what David would say. While there were bad things going on in the battle, he anticipated that David would begin asking all these other questions. He anticipated David's response. He knew him well enough to anticipate his reaction to the strategic error. But there's no evidence... When the messenger goes to David, that David even gives a rip about everything else that's gone on. By the way, that's another way to know that you are spiraling downward towards destruction. When the things that you ought to care about, suddenly you don't care about. All you care about is covering up your sin. David's focus was on one thing, hiding his sin at any cost. Matters of state and ethical issues had been pushed way down on his priority list. And now he must have thought after getting that message, Uriah's dead, I have won, my sin has been covered up. Verse 26, now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And then when the time of mourning was over, look at David, he jumped right into action. 
He sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. Look at the end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, David thought that the whole incident had, had been covered up. Now he had, he had killed Uriah. Uriah was dead. And, and the only person that could testify him against him was Bathsheba. And she was probably motivated by fear of her life, given the culture of that day, knowing who she was with. And so he thought she would keep quiet. And so he must have thought all the bases are covered. But David had sinned. He thought he'd managed to build an effective cover-up plan, but he overlooked one small detail. And I would submit to you this morning that it's the detail that most of us overlook when we're in the depths of that spiral, and that is this, that you can't hide your heart from God. You see, it's interesting this morning that as I sit up here in front of you and as you sit next to one another, it's so very, very easy for us to convince ourselves when we are in that spiral effect that nobody else knows. And we get comfort from the fact that if nobody else knows on the planet, if nobody else knows that can hurt me physically or that can leave me, then somehow I must be okay and everything has been covered up. And we discount the fact that we can't hide our heart from God. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him. Nathan was a prophet. He came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the rich one and the poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat of his bread, drink of his cup, and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. In other words, poor man, he's only got one. Rich man, he's got tons. And the poor man is taken advantage of. The rich man takes the poor man's one lamb, and he prepares it for the man who had come to him for his guest. Look at verse 5. Look at David's response. (laughs) This would be kind of funny if it wasn't so tragic. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. (laughs) Isn't it funny? This is not a true story. It's not like Nathan the prophet is coming to him saying, I want to tell you something that happened in the kingdom yesterday. This is not a true story. This is a parable. It's an illustration that he's being given. And yet David, boy, he gets, you know, warrior man. He gets really enraged. His anger burned greatly against the man. Kind of like the boogeyman, okay? He doesn't exist. Why are you so mad, David? And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely this man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Isn't it interesting? Nathan's parallel was so close to what David had done and David tried to cover up so skillfully or thought he had tried to cover up so skillfully what he should have done. And this should remind us that no matter how hard we try, we can't cover it up. I think it's very interesting to hear this prophet comes to David. The prophet knows absolutely nothing about what's gone on. God tells him, hey, tell David this. And so Nathan just says this and all of the sudden David knows when he starts putting it together. In spite of obvious sin, though, David gives a pretty good speech. Do you notice that? Can't you just picture him? David, this this warrior, this man of battle, this king, this powerful man. This man should die! I can just imagine it. What a powerful speech. I have, and maybe you have been as well, surprised at the times when I'm at the depths of my depravity. 
when I can give a good speech? How about you? When you can talk about the Lord. Moms and dads, have you ever been amazed at the depth of your depravity? When you're at the very worst, when you know you're in that spiral, going someplace you know you shouldn't go, when you're there and all of a sudden you recognize maybe that I am giving a good speech to my son or to my daughter, but what I'm accusing them of is exactly what I'm doing. Has anybody else been there? You don't have to raise your hands, but I'll raise both. I've been there. I can give a really good speech can say something really good, and it's such a frightening position to be in, the ability to talk when we have no intention of walking the walk. Nathan set David up, and David took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. In fact, he pronounced his own judgment. You read it there in the text, right? He should die. It was then in verse 7 that Nathan gave him the punchline to the parable. Verse 7 says, Nathan said to David, you're the man. You're the man. You're the rich man. You're the rich man that took the one lamb. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel and it's I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. And Nathan goes in and tells exactly what God has done for him. And yet in spite of honoring me, you've chosen to dishonor me in this way. And verse 12 says, indeed you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. You see, David was reminded of something that I think it's time for many of us to be reminded of today, and that is this, that God is bigger and smarter than we are. And He is. I don't know, and it's, it's always an interesting thing, you know, when you prepare to speak to a group of people on a subject such as this, when your past catches up to you, to think about all of the things that could be, we could be doing as human beings in secret right at the moment. And if you've ever, I, I've been on the other side, by the way, where I've been sitting where you are and somebody's been up in front of me and I kind of have in the back of my mind this thing that I'm doing that I think I'm doing in secret that I know might have consequences and I'm just kind of looking at him going, I wonder if he'll say my thing. <laughs> and he doesn't and internally I'm going, yeah, well, it must not be that bad then. Because he forgot to name my, my, my deal, right? So it must not be that bad. Now, I know you're looking at me, some of you are going, you are a pathetic person. And I am. I really am. I don't say that flippantly. I am. That's how I think. That's how depraved, messed up people think. And if a good portion of you won't admit to that, you're lying because you've done that too. If somehow you don't name my little thing that's going on that's in secret that I know eventually produces destruction, but I'm not really to turn away from, if you don't name it, then somehow it just doesn't exist. But David was reminded that God is bigger and he's smarter than we are. And even though Nathan had not had anything to do with the situation, he could not have known about it. Now he's telling David exactly what he had done in painful detail and he pronounces God's judgment on the king. Robert Lewis, some of you men know Robert Lewis. He is the teacher on our men's fraternity curriculum that we use on Tuesdays. Robert Lewis, when he was teaching about this moment of decision in David's life, wrote this. Lewis pointed out that David could not have continued in denial with words such as, I did not have sex with that woman. Instead, the elements of David's being that made him a man after God's own heart rose up within him, what Lewis calls the face of the king. And David, face to face with himself, made the most noble statement of his life. And I would agree to that this morning. 
Maybe it's a statement that some of you need to make in your context today. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. That's it. David was really good about making speeches. Remember his response to what Nathan had told him, the parable that Nathan had given. David was uh, very good with words. And yet all he could say was, I have sinned against the Lord. Let me say to you this morning that that's really all that's required, right? See, God never needs an explanation because he knows our hearts. Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin and you shall not die. There was no excuses. There was no spin No double talk, no legalese, no waffling. David saw the situation clearly and he dealt with it boldly. David confessed his sin and as a result, God said you're not going to die for it, but there will be consequences we'll see here in just a moment. I believe this was a defining moment, by the way, in David's life. He confessed his sin, he was prepared to accept his punishment, and instead God showed him grace. And as a result of that, I think it set him up for the next season of his life. And you know, this is true of us as well this morning. Understanding God's grace will have the same effect on you and me. If you were to turn in your Bible, some of you are familiar with the text, to uh, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. It illustrates the depth of David's repentance. It wasn't just, as I've said to you so often, it wasn't the little kid that walks up to the dad after breaking the priceless stained glass window in the house as I did when I was a child, and says, sorry, sorry, can we play baseball? And you find in Psalm 51, it wasn't just simply a sorry, I'll try to do better sort of thing, but it was a deep, heartfelt plea to God for forgiveness, for healing, and for restoration. If you read through Psalm 51, what an incredible psalm. would be good for you to pray if you find yourself in that spiral, needing to become clean with God. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Wash me thoroughly. I love verse 3, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Let me tell you something that uh, most Americans, at least most Americans that I hang with, would do well to learn, and that is taking responsibility for your own life. There are so many of us that spend so much of our life blaming others for the position that we find ourselves in. For the choices that we make. Well, if you only understood, and I grew up in this kind of a home, and my dad was never this, or my dad did this, or my mom was never there, or we never had this, or I was never exposed to that. It needs to stop. David is a perfect example of that. David didn't blame anybody for his sin. He took responsibility. And genuine repentance always brings forgiveness. It brings restoration and healing. And the end result of that process ought to be, genuine repentance ought to be change. Parents, don't you look for that when you uh, discipline your child? I I, I can remember our boys growing up. Our our daughter was sinless. Did I say that? No, she's not. Well, compared to the boys, she probably is. But you, you you know what I'm saying. But, but they had this idea that repentance is just simply saying, I'm sorry. And then the next day, saying, I'm sorry again for the same thing. And then the next day, I'm sorry. And then when they learn word like depravity, they just go, I'm just depraved. I'm a sinner. Show mercy and grace. Justin was really good at that. Dad, can we practice mercy? I remember as a five or six-year-old, can we practice grace? I love those words. 
I don't understand what they mean, but I know every time you bestow them upon me, my backside is not warmed up. So that's a wonderful thing. That's not repentance. Repentance brings about change. It always brings about change. Now there are many who want to stop the story right there, but don't stop reading because in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. We love stories with that perfect happy ending and we want to sin, don't you? I want to sin, but I don't want the consequences. We told our boys uh, very early in their uh, lives, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences. You, you might want to write that down. And by the way, moms and dads, don't, don't write it down so that you can share it with your children at poignant moments. Write it down so that you can be reminded of it if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus. That even though forgiveness comes, there are consequences. There are consequences to our action. And like it or not, you have to coexist with those consequences. You choose something, but there is a consequence. We know it in the scientific world as cause and effect, right? Because this happens, we expect this reaction. Here's the third law of the harvest. You get more than what you plant. Not a farmer, but I understand that. Pretty incredible though, right? Put a little seed into the ground, and up comes this big stalk of corn with ears of corn growing out all over it. And then we name a football team after it, and it's awesome, man, it's great. That's what happens, right? You get more than what you plant. If you put, if you put just a little grain of corn in, in the, a kernel of corn in the ground and, and just one kernel of corn popped up, you go, what's the point, right? No, you get more than what you plant. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, however, Nathan said to David, because of this deed, you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. Now, there are a lot of theological ramifications, by the way, to that. There are a lot of people that struggle with that verse, and at a time in the future, we'll talk about that. It kind of falls under that line, why does God allow uh, bad things to happen to good people, to an innocent child in this case? But here's the point. The long-reaching effect of a moment of sinful self-indulgence can be disastrous. Some of you know that, and if we took the time this morning and you were willing to do that, you could stand up and you could talk about the devastating consequence of your choices, of your sinful self-indulgence. But if you found this to be true in your life, I have in mind that I seldom pause to consider that factor in the moment of temptation. I don't do that. When I was a youth pastor, I used to say to high school students, don't choose your moral standards when you're in the backseat of a car. Don't choose your moral standards when you're at a party that you knew you shouldn't have been at. We seldom pause at those particular moments we're in, we're in the midst of temptation. We seldom pause to go, okay, wait, wait just a second, wait just a second. Wait, wait, just hold that thought because I might be interested in doing that. Let me see what God says about this. Now, if you do that, come up to me after the service, tell me how that's worked for you because that's incredible. I never did that. Once I was tempted... I did the full Monty, man. I went all the way down the spiral, right? We seldom stop. We seldom pause to consider that. If we could stop and we could consider for just a moment the devastating consequences of our choices, I believe we would say no much more often. In fact, consider these facts about sin. Sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. 
Have you found it to be true in your life? You make a choice and you go, well, it's not that bad. I'm just going to do this. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to do this. Sin takes you further than you ever wanted to go. Number two, sin will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. Tell that to somebody who's found themselves addicted to some type of substance. They didn't go into it saying, I think I'll try this. I'd like to become an addict. Nobody does that. No alcoholic says, give me a beer. I've never had one. I think I'd like to be addicted to beer or whiskey. Or Nobody does that. Sin always keeps you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And then lastly, sin will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. For just the pleasure of sin for a moment. Let me ask you, moms and dads this morning, do you have any idea how your disobedience and running may be affecting those that are around you? Dad, this morning, I don't presuppose that there aren't some men here that are right now carrying on illicit affairs that nobody knows about, at least they think nobody knows about. Dads, if you stop to consider for one moment the devastating consequences, not only on your wife, but your children and on the next generation. Those of you in the business world who are cheating your employer out of time, out of money, whatever it may be, have you ever stopped to consider that the standard that you are creating in your home might have devastating consequences on your children in the future? I don't think many of us have done that. We would do well to do that. This week I read, again, a book that I read when it first came out called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. If you haven't read it, you need to do it, probably today, if you can, if possible. In Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, we read about a son who decides that life would be more exciting if he lived life on the other side of the tracks. He bought into the idea that that's where life is really satisfying and exciting. And so he went to his father and he demanded his portion of the inheritance. Now, because he was the younger brother, the elder brother would get two-thirds, the younger brother would get a third. You have to understand, at least last time I checked, no matter what culture you were in, an inheritance was something that you got after your dad died, right? I mean, that's what happened. My dad went to be with Jesus and I got tools and books. But I had to wait till after he died, right? This kid comes to his dad and he goes, hey, basically, I wish you were dead. And so what I'd like for you to do, and Bible scholars prove this point, I basically would like for you to liquidate the family assets so that I can have one-third. I meant selling land, was the biggest asset in that day. I want you to sell the land so that I can have a third of it. And I don't want it when you die. I want it right now. It's always been interesting to me, the response of the father. He divided the wealth and he gave the son what he wanted. <laughs> I'm thinking, man, if I was that dad, there's no way. I got smacked the kid upside the head. I know it's not politically correct, but that is what I would do. All right? And I would go, there is no way that I'm selling land. You little, I'll take you right out of the will. You ain't getting nothing. Think about the spiritual parallels. Isn't it interesting that that's the way our Heavenly Father is so often with us? Just like the Father was in this. He, he, he gives us what we think we want so we can realize that it doesn't actually satisfy and that He really is the ultimate source of satisfaction. Isn't that interesting? The dad doesn't do what you and I would have done had we been posed with the same question. Instead, he gives the son what he wants. And the young man goes on his way and and the Bible says that he went to a distant country and he squandered all of his estate with loose living. That's the NASB. And it was all gone. He found himself on a farm feeding uh, pigs, wishing he could eat as well as they were eating. And, and I believe he was singing something like the theme to Les Mis. I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. 
I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. I'm the only Bible student that has ever speculated that that might have been what he was singing, but it would have been something like that. So he decides to go home and he's going to confess to his father. And he has no hope of his dad actually accepting him back as a son. And so he comes up with a plan. In verse 18 of Luke 15, he says, I'll get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me one of your hired men because at least they don't have to live with pigs. Please let me do that. Boy, he was in for a surprise in verse 20. Let me read this to you. It says, So he got up and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him. And he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine who was dead has come to life again. He was lost and all has been found. And they begin to celebrate you love that story that's why you got to get this book you got to read this this is awesome stuff i so love this parable and the message it gives us about the sovereign loving god of the universe here's why i love it if you're a dad you'll relate to this he doesn't say anything that i would have said if i would have been the dad he doesn't say where have you been change your clothes you stink What is that on your face? Get rid of it. Go shave. When's the last time you brushed your teeth? Do you know how much money you've wasted? Do you know how worried we've been? Your mother, do you know how much I've put up with her and crying all of the time? Who have you been with? I would have said all those things. But some of you? Father doesn't say any of that. In fact, if you look at the culture of that day, Elderly men did not run under any circumstances. Probably would not even run from a fire. And yet the father looks down that long road leading up to the estate and he sees in the distance that it might be that son that he loved so dearly. And so he takes the chance that it's him and he goes running after him. I love that picture. He immediately restores his relationship as a son He throws a party and begins the process of renewing the relationship. That is so awesome. And here's here's the great news for us this morning. God is willing to do the same thing for us. That's what He's in the business of doing. That's what He does. Every single day of our human existence, every single day that He allows us to be on this planet, He welcomes repentant sinners into relationship with Him. I love that. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 said, The Lord's loving kindness, kindness says indeed, never cease. For His compassions will never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I love that His mercies are new every morning. I've said to you before, I use up mine at the end of every day. I look in my account and I find out that it's empty. But the great news, it's kind of like a bank account where sometime during the night something magical happens and he places it back into the account again. Isn't that awesome? And you wake up the next morning and God goes, my mercy's still here. 
My grace is still here. And I don't care what you have done this morning, how far down the wrong road that you've traveled, God is there to meet with you. And here's the really cool thing. He'll be running to you just like the dad did in the parable. In his arms, you're going to find forgiveness, you're going to find mercy, you're going to find grace. Don't ever buy into the lie that you can't be forgiven, that things can't change, you've, you've gone too far. Louis Giglio wrote this recently, sin doesn't make us bad. No, it makes us worse than that. Sin makes us dead. But Jesus gives us life. It's awesome. Last law of the harvest is this. You can't change this year's harvest, but you can do something about next year. Once in a while, you see on the evening news, the world news, you, you, you see a farmer you know, after a big drought, and they go, oh, this crop is devastated, or we did this, and this happened, and you can't do anything about that, right? It's already passed. And if you're here this morning, and you've got something like that in your life, let me tell you what this, you can't do anything about that. You can't do anything about what's done. But you can decide, I'm going to do something about the things that I'm planting now, so that my harvest will be different next year. You can change. Are you ready for a fresh start? I don't care what you've done this morning, what kind of situation you find yourself in right now. I remember at my previous ministry, waking up on a Saturday morning and finding out that a man in our church had, had taken about a half a million dollars from his company. His face was plastered on the front of the newspaper. He was the teacher of the biggest adult class at our church. I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care what it is that you have done. You can come back. And it's not going to be an easy journey, but I believe it'll be the most worthwhile venture of your entire lifetime. You'll have to be honest with God, and let me tell you these things. You'll have to stop trying to hide your sin behind cheap excuses and lies. You'll have to be willing to deal with and accept the consequences of your sin, because remember you choose your sin, but you don't choose your consequences. You'll have to agree with God that that's sin, repent, and you move in a new direction. If you haven't trusted Him as your personal Savior, it begins with that, by trusting Him as your Savior today. And then let Him begin the process of rebuilding your life with the Spirit of God coming into you and empowering you and enabling you to live real life in a messed up world. The big idea is really simple this morning. You're never so far away that God's mercy and grace can't provide a way back home. I love that. That's why I'm so thankful that our salvation is not about, is not about how much good we do, how many things we do. It's all about Him. And so as long as He gives you a breath to breathe, it's never too late to come back home. And I trust that maybe you're particular situation wasn't named specifically this morning, but if you find yourself in that position, I've been there before. It's an incredibly horrible place to be in. I equate it with being outside working in the lawn, being all nasty and filthy and sweaty. And, and God's forgiveness when I'm ready to come clean is like jumping in that shower and having that warm waterfall all over me and washing all the dirt and all the bad stuff away. And that's what God wants to do for you and for me this morning. And I trust you'll take advantage of that. Let's pray. God, so often in my life, I've run. So many times when I'm running, when I know I'm moving in the wrong direction, when I know I'm making choices, making decisions that I shouldn't make, 
I still say the right things. I can pray with a person. I can do all the right Christianese stuff. It's a scary thing even though I'm messed up. But I know in the depths of my soul in those moments that I've sinned. And I know that there's a holy, righteous God who sees my heart. Who sees right past all of the exterior stuff that I place in front of me. And God, I pray for my friends here this morning, whether it's a middle school or high school student who's got a secret, whether it's a dad that is making incredibly horrible choices in his life that will have devastating consequences, not only for him, for his marriage, but also for his children. Whether it's the mom that's got secrets going on and things that nobody knows about, buying into the idea that payday will never come. God, I pray that you would use your spirit this morning to bring conviction. God, we want to enjoy the life you created us to enjoy, and that starts, first of all, with having a personal saving relationship with you as our Savior. But it is maintained when we're clean before you. And I pray that that will take place today. Whether that happens in public uh, with somebody uh, receiving counsel or whether we just do business privately in our heart with God. Cause us to come clean, not making excuses, but desiring to be clean with our Creator, the one who desires to be in relationship with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.